We're going to be looking at Psalm 130 this morning and the first four verses of this, but I'll read the whole psalm. Let's hear God's word. A song of ascents. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, mercy, and with him is plenteous redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. So ends our reading then of God's holy, inspired, and infallible word. Well, beloved, in the Lord Jesus Christ, as you look back over the past several months, even, I'm sure there's a lot that has transpired in your life. It certainly has in our own and in our own family. The new grandbabies, my wife had major surgery. We finished one semester of school, we'll soon to enter another. I hope to go to China to teach a course in counseling and so many things we can think about of our daily life that are keeping us occupied and, and very busy, no doubt. And you have your own lives that you are very busy in as well. Much has transpired. We can look around us in the world today and see a lot of confusion, uh, a lot of trials, so-called, going on in our government levels, and a lot of hypocrisy and lies and wars that are transpiring on various fronts in our world, and a lot of people who are just confused. God's law has fallen, as it were, in the streets. There is threats. There are challenges, economic concerns, perhaps even. But while these outward things, we could say, are all happening, each one of us have also had spiritual events that have taken place. We recognize them, or we don't, or we have significant ones or not so significant ones, but throughout this whole past several months as well, there have been a lot of things that have transpired in our lives spiritually. Maybe we don't often sit down and think about and actually reflect on or meditate about those things, which probably we should do more of. You find that in the Psalms often, which should be our, a reflection of how we ought to view spiritual things as well. But the question I have for us this morning is, what has transpired in this past season? Where are you, where am I, spiritually with God? Now, this psalm is a psalm of David. Um, it's a psalm that is in the Word of God as an expression of the heart of a person. And we could call him a saint, because the person who writes this particular psalm is one who has been saved and redeemed by Christ's blood. 
and has come to faith in Christ. Their hope is in him alone. They are a saint, and yet he's experienced difficulty, trial, tribulation, conviction. Conviction of sin because he realizes he hasn't fulfilled what God has called him to do. But this psalm could as easily have been written by a sinner who does not know God, even one who comes to church regularly and doesn't have a personal relationship with God, has never really understood the depths of sin before the face of a holy God, has never come to turn from that sin, repent of that sin, and believe in Jesus Christ as the only Savior. So I want to try to unpack the first four verses of this psalm this morning for us and what what God is saying through his word and by his spirit to us. And I want to do this with the theme that you see in your bulletins here, God's gracious answer to a sinner's saint's cry with three things you want to look at. First of all, why, why is this person in this psalm crying out? He'll tell us. But secondly, we want to look at to whom he cries. To to whom does this person in this psalm, and and we need to look at it from this perspective this morning, not of somebody sitting next to me, not of maybe someone else, but myself, because that's how the word of God is written. It's written to speak to us personally. So to whom is he crying, secondly? And then last of all, we'll look at how. How is he crying? How does he actually write this psalm? Well, beloved, Psalm 130 is a psalm of David. We call it a song of ascents you have written here or a a song of degrees. And in some ways, it also is this ascent up and down, this flow within the psalm itself, as you find in many of the psalms, to heights uh, of of ecstasy, of deliverance, but then also into the depths of of self-reflection, of of conviction, of not knowing where to turn, perhaps. And so the psalms are varied. These psalms, 150 that are given to us of God, are for worship of God. That's why we sing them in worship. Others, we could say, are supplicating psalms. Others direct us to the glory of God. Some uh, speak of his power and majesty. And others are reflective of what goes on in the heart of people like ourselves and the difficulties that we experience in life, the challenges, and and also our spiritual journeys. And so Psalm 150 or 130 is speaking to us really of God. And the person of the psalm is set before us as one who is wrestling through the various dimensions of this in their own heart of who is God? Why do I feel this separation from God? What about my own sin? How can this be dealt with? And how can I be reconciled to God and find deliverance and hope in the Savior? Well, David, we know, is a man after God's own heart. And he pens these words for us this morning. David, as he writes this psalm, is very well aware of the reason for which he is in this place. He calls it a dark pit. Out of the depths have I cried to you. 
The picture he has here is not simply a physical one. David's not in some pit somewhere, in some hole, in some cave that he's reflecting about that he needs to be rescued from. But he's using an analogy, a picture, to give us an insight as to where he's at inside in his heart. The depths of discouragement uh, and the depths of guilt and shame. And this is a place really where we alone can know in our own hearts whether or not we're acquainted with the truths that David here, as a man after God's own heart, is speaking about. And the question we can ask ourselves, do I know that language? Do I understand this psalm? Or is it strange words and language to me? Now God uses, as he did in the life of David, if you follow his life, there are many things in David's life that God used to bring him at times in great need so that he would in turn cry out to God for deliverance and see God's mighty hand of deliverance in his life and magnify God and live for God even more. Does that happen in your life? Even the outward circumstances that we began with, all these difficulties in our land and in your life and maybe economically or whatever's happening in your life with relationships and difficulties, God doesn't just bring those on us or bring them to pass in our life to crush us and destroy us, not at all. He brings us and allows us to come into these positions and places to draw us out, to draw us to himself, to redeem us and to forgive us. David knew the joy of walking with God, of being in fellowship with God, rejoicing in God, knowing the forgiveness of sins before the face of God. But in this particular psalm, that's not where he's at. Even though David had times of rejoicing in favor with God, does that mean he never comes to the place where he was guilty? Oh, we know that's not true. Let's just think of David for a moment, who wrote this psalm. He had a time in his life when he sinned grievously with Bathsheba. And Nathan, the prophet, comes to him and tells him the parable of the one sheep and the other man who had so many sheep. And when David hears this, he hears what this rich man had done to the one sheep of the other man, and he rises up in anger. But David, in his heart... He still had a sense of justice. He still had a sense of right and wrong. And yet, at those moments, we know when you read Psalm 51 and 32, David wasn't right with God. That was a problem. And in this psalm, we find that David also is in the depths. David knew what it was to keep silence before God. We read that in Psalm 32. When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day. Your hand was heavy on me. My moisture was turned to the drought of summer. What a terrible place to be. You ever been there? Because of guilt and your own conviction by the word of God and the spirit of God, you're pressed down. 
Well, in Psalm 130, we meet with David who's crying out to God in a similar, perhaps, situation out of the depths. Have I cried to you? Children, the picture here of David is someone who is stuck in a miry pit. And if you ever have clay in in your yard when we uh, moved into a place where we're living now, uh, the, the grass wasn't seeded yet and, and sometimes our grandkids would be over and ourselves and we'd have boots on and you walk in the clay and I remember even as a kid doing this you're walking in the clay and all of a sudden your one foot is stuck and you pull up your foot and out comes your foot from the boot you're just stuck there and all of a sudden you're, you're standing there you, you can't move you're just stuck unless someone, someone comes to rescue you or you fall down and you fall in the clay and get all dirty. But that's the picture here in a spiritual sense that David is talking about. And the more he struggled in this pit, in this miry clay, it seemed like the deeper he was getting. Now what's the reason for which David cries? Is he crying because his foot is stuck in the mud? No, he's crying because this is his sense of his relationship in these moments with God. He'll say that because when he cries for mercy in verse 2, he tells us in verse 3 why. If you, Lord, should mark iniquity, sin, who could stand? What's David saying? Well, we read the law this morning. David knew the law. And he knew that if the Lord would mark his iniquities, if he'd check the list in David's life, and he knew God being holy and just, he knew that God would leave him in this pit. That's what he deserved. And the point of David is clear. If God would mark our iniquities, if God would deal with us what we deserve from God, you and I would be lost forever. This is the reality of the conviction of the Holy Spirit and of sin. When God comes to teach us, we come to this place of which David is expressing here in this psalm. And it's not because we've just offended some list of rules, some ten words of the law. It's because we've offended him who gave it, who, who created us. And we recognize we've sinned not just against some statement of law, but we've sinned against a person, a, a God who, who created us. If you, Lord should mark iniquities. O Lord, who could stand? You ever been there? Are you there now, perhaps? Maybe you've had a falling out with friends or things are challenging in your life right now and as you reflect upon it, God has allowed these things to converge to bring us to the point to ask ourselves the question, what is my relationship with God? You've tried what the world has to offer and you realize it's vain and it's empty. It never gives what it promises it will give. 
Perhaps your life is, so to speak, in the mire, and you're sinking, as David experienced here. Is your natural inclination to flee to God? It's not a natural inclination. Children, what happened when Adam and Eve had no sin and they were communing with God? God was in the garden in the beginning of the creation. They walked and talked with God. But when they fell, when they sinned against God, and God comes walking in the garden, what happens to Adam and Eve? They actually run. That's our natural inclination. So what we see in this psalm here is really an inclination of someone who knows God, who has tasted of God, even though some of that taste of who God is is His holiness and His majesty and His glory and His justice, yet there is this inclination to God to stand before Him and acknowledge Him. O Lord, if You would mark iniquities, who could stand? Have you ever struggled with guilt over your sin that you've committed? And shame in your own heart for what you've done. That's where David is. Maybe even someone here might say, but you don't know. You don't know me. No one here knows me. There is no forgiveness for me. I've sinned beyond what God could forgive. That's precisely what the devil would want us to think. He wants us to think we're past, we're sunk, we're dead. The waves have come over us, there's no hope. That's why we're here this morning. Because the Word of God proclaims forgiveness, it proclaims mercy in our God, it proclaims life. And that brings us then to our second thought, to whom he cries. David is actually crying out to God, the God of the Old Testament, who's the same as the God today, of course, but David knew this God of the Old Testament who had given his holy law. He knew that he stood before God condemned because he was the lawgiver. He was fully aware of God's holiness and his justice. There's a peculiar expression in Job. He he makes this statement in Job 14, 17. He says, My transgression is sealed up in a bag, and you sew up my iniquity. The idea is of Job and uh, of David here in this psalm is a perception that God knows perfectly every thought, every word, every action that has arisen from my heart that was not in conformity to him, his law, his truth. And we're guilty because we've broken the law. We've transgressed against this God. Do you recognize what David here recognized? Who God is. It wasn't just what he was, his guilt, his shame, but he recognized God. Who is God to you? 
It's a very important question. And I'm not asking us to rattle off a list of things that we know about God. If I asked you to tell me something about one of the past presidents, you could probably tell me what number he was, uh, when maybe he was uh, elected to be serving, or what he did in his... You could tell me many, many things, but do you know him? This is the question we're coming to. Who, who is this God? To whom this man in this psalm? To whom you would cry out to? Who is God? That's a foundational question you need to answer. I need to answer. Because I've known people who've grown up in the church their whole life, who have a distorted view, who have a misconception of who God, though he's told us who he is, they still misconceive of him for who he is. And in a sense, we only have an idol in our eye, in our imagination. I mentioned before Adam in paradise. He had communed with God. He had spoken with God. He had delighted in God. David knew those times and moments as well. And maybe you have known those times and moments as well. But when God came into the garden after he had sinned, he suddenly saw a different view. His eyes now had been opened in a way he had never seen before. He needed to know God rightly. Not only that he was holy and just, but that he is one who delights in showing mercy. And so while there is holiness to be seen in the Garden of Eden, there is another garden that we need to come to this morning. That is the Garden of Gethsemane. That's where we see God himself here on earth for who he really is. There we see not the first Adam, but the second Adam, Christ. He's the sinless Lamb of God. And what's happening in that garden? Well, you children, you know this too. When we talk about the Garden of Gethsemane and we talk about Good Friday and what's happening is Jesus, who lived his whole life for 30-some years, has come now to the culmination of why he's here. He's in this garden and he has left the disciples a little distance and he, he goes into the center of the garden and he falls down on his face And he's weeping, and he's so pressed down in his heart and his spirit and his soul that even his sweat becomes as drops of blood. What's happening there? The fullness of what David was experiencing here. If you, Lord, would mark iniquities, O oh Lord, who could stand? Even the sinless Lamb of God who had laid on him in these moments in the garden sin, our sin, pressed him down. Who could stand? God in his holy, 
Justice and wrath is pressing down, was marking, as it were, iniquity after iniquity after iniquity and putting it on his son. That's the end, we could say, of God marking iniquity. And we could ask the question, if God subjected his own beloved son, whom he loved from eternity, to that suffering there in the garden, and not only that, then to be led to Jerusalem and to be faced with all these soldiers and to be facing a cruel death and a beating and a crucifixion, what do you think this same God is going to do with your sin and my sin if it is not born and carried by the one in the garden of Gethsemane. If God's own son had to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where would we appear? If thou, Lord, shouldst mark iniquities, O Lord, who should stand? This is not only true for those who have known God, as David did, but it's certainly true for those who are unbelievers, who don't yet know God. When we come into the conviction of our sin for the first time, this is who we face. We face a God who must deal with sin, and he marks our iniquities, and we need to be forgiven. David, he mentioned in another psalm, he said... I sought the Lord, my soul ran in the night and did not cease. My soul refused to be comforted. I remembered God and was troubled. That's a peculiar statement. David, a man of God, remembering God and troubled. It's because he was not in a right way with God. He had experienced God's forgiveness and deliverance, but had chosen at times to walk in another path. And that can happen to believers when we backslide, when we sin against God. And so David was distressed, and his thoughts were, how is God going to deal with sin? And perhaps your life is like David's. Do you have a besetting sin, perhaps, that God is pointing to and dealing with in your life that needs to be confessed? David, he cries, my sin are more than I can count. My iniquities have taken hold upon me. I can't even lift my face to heaven. Such souls like David in this psalm have no joy. Inwardly, maybe outwardly, they try to express some, but they can't have it inwardly. They have a sense of shame, of failure. They become weak, they're bowed down because David knows God. But this isn't where the psalm ends. In his own confession, his own understanding of who God is, the Holy One who requires justice, who marks iniquities. No, that's not where he ends. There are four times in this psalm that David uses the word Lord. Twice that refer to him as 
the faithful covenant-keeping Jehovah, and twice referring to the Lord as the one who is ruler, supreme, the one who is the one to guide his whole life and how he's to live. And one of the greatest hindrances, I think, that we experience in our own hearts when we come in this place where we feel guilty, we feel like we've sinned against God, even after we've tasted of his goodness and grace, is that we question who God is. Or we we don't really believe he is who he says he is. And we pray... Perhaps God be with me, or God help me, or God forgive me, but we don't really believe what he said about all of those things. For when we pray, God be with me today, and we don't believe that he's with us, we don't believe his word of promise, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Or if we pray, Lord forgive me, For this particular sin, and we're specific, and we spell it out, and we confess it, and then we go our way, having asked for forgiveness, imagining we still carry that load and burden and weight ourselves. And don't believe, he who confesses and forsakes his sin shall find mercy. God's promise. This is what David is struggling with here in this psalm. He confesses his sin, and he confesses who the Lord is. He believes, he trusts in the Lord, Jehovah. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord Jehovah, covenant-keeping God. If it were not for you, Lord, who keeps covenant, I would sink into the depths. O Lord, who is ruler of all, governing all that's happening in my life, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. He realizes he doesn't deserve to be heard, but he will call because he knows the Lord is merciful. He confesses, if you, Lord, should mark iniquity, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. In the root of his heart, in the bottom of all that he's experiencing, he knows this God, Jehovah, his faithfulness, his very being, his character who's been revealed and who's shown to us. Of course, David doesn't have as we do. Shown to us in Christ see who he is and he cries out to him he turns to him and there are so many people even even christians who who come to this place of david in this psalm and they they kind of throw up their hands in despair and they go on in life as if there's no hope and this can keep on in the path that they're going and they don't recognize and they don't taste of the goodness of god in his mercy and his forgiveness that he sends to them If we would be without this third part of this psalm, the third thought that we consider here, how he cries, we would be without hope. He says, but with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Is this your confession? There is forgiveness with 
That's not a place where a person comes to excuse their sin. To continue on in their path of selfish indulgence or prideful living. Rather, it's a place that we come on our faces in our hearts in awe, in amazement, in wonder. God, the holy, glorious God, looks on me in the depths of my sin and my guilt and my shame, and he lifts me up, he washes me clean, and he sets me free. His mercy. And this is David's confession. He confesses there is forgiveness that you may be feared. He's not yet even, at that point we we sense he's not even yet experienced that or been lifted out of the miry clay. But this is his confession. This is his statement of faith. There is forgiveness. And in this way we see the repentance of David. He humbles himself before God. He confesses that if God would mark his sin, he would be just indeed. We couldn't stand. But there is forgiveness. And David's heart is inclined to God, to seek him, to, to, to rest in his promise of pardon and to then live his life of gratitude. And he waits for God. You read that in the rest of the psalm. I'm waiting for God. I'm hoping in his word. There is a steadfast love and mercy and plenteous redemption. And his confession, you read in the last statement, he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. David knows with his God there is a guarantee of pardon and cleansing to every sinner who comes to him. Is that your God? Or are you somehow hindered in your understanding, in your heart, that refrains, that keeps you, that casts up a stumbling block to this same God to whom David is crying out to? If we didn't have this hope and this confidence and this assurance, we'd be no different than many other religions today. You need to pray for a certain amount of time. You need to have this kind of thing happen to you. You need to be uh, grieved this amount. Or you need to have this kind of experience. Or whatever it might be before you can believe God will forgive you. And they keep burdened souls under bondage and despair. But what we're saying here, and David is saying here, is that having a sense of God's justice and holiness and judgment, there is a hope of forgiveness that drives out terror from our hearts. There is a hope in the mercy of God that draws us to him, to believe in him. Let me read you something Calvin says about this passage. He says... It is no doubt true that the sinner who, alarmed at the divine threatening, is tormented in himself. He does not despise God, yet he shuns him. So he's saying there's a sinner who's alarmed hearing about God and his threatening and his law. He's tormented in his own heart and his own conscience. 
He doesn't despise God. He confesses God to be holy and just, yet he shuns him, Calvin says. He, he's staying away. He doesn't run to God. And notice what Calvin says immediately. He says, and this shunning of him is downright apostasy and rebellion. He goes on to say, it follows that men never serve God aright unless they know and believe that he is a gracious and merciful being. That's why we come together on the Lord's days to remind ourselves from the promises of God himself there is forgiveness with God that he may be feared. Forgiveness is only because of and through the work of Christ. That's what we think about, we reflect upon. That's why when we have the Lord's Supper even and the sacraments that are administered, it is pointing us again and again to Christ, His fullness, His completeness and what He has accomplished. When He went through that way of the garden, that garden of Gethsemane, crawling as a worm and a no man, going the way of the cross when God had marked iniquities. And you see, the psalmist here understands this. He first understands there is need for forgiveness, yes, but he comes then to say, there is not only forgiveness, that will lead me to fear. Not the kind of fear that we think of as slavish fear, a, a fear that's frightened and afraid and runs the other way as Adam in the garden. No, it is a fear of awe and trembling and uh, a fear that stirs our heart in love to want to worship, to want to, to, to obey, to, to walk in the way of God's commandments. That's a broken and a contrite heart before God that delights in God. That's the fear of God. And dear friends, you probably know in your own experience, I trust, that when we keep from God, when we hold back from God, when we don't confess what our own hearts and the Holy Spirit is convicting us of, these marks of iniquity, we don't have peace, we don't have joy, we don't have a delight in the service of God. There is forgiveness that you may be feared. This same God of David is the same God who lives today. It's the same God who came and appeared to Moses and made this discovery. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and will by no means clear the guilty. Merciful, gracious, slow to anger, plenteous in mercy. How many times do you read the Old Testament and it says to Israel, who had departed from God, who had went away astray from him, who left God and served idols, he says, come to me. O house of Israel, I don't delight in your destruction, but turn to me and live. There's forgiveness with me, and you will live. 
That's what this psalm is communicating to us this morning. What is hindering you from coming to this God daily to know this forgiveness, to live out of this forgiveness, to fear God as he ought to be feared? Is it your sin, your understanding of how you aren't living in a way that would earn any salvation? And we cannot. But he calls us then in our guilt and our shame to come to him for a complete and full pardon of sin. God doesn't say there's forgiveness for this sin or that sin or maybe some sins. You, you know, when Paul writes to, to the, the, the Corinthians, you notice what kind of sinners he mentions. You who were. And he gives a list of murderers and whoremongers and homosexuals and idolaters, these great sinners at Corinth. And he says, God has forgiven you. He's justified you. He's sanctified you. Now live like that. The Lord comes to us and says, everyone that thirsts, come to the waters. You who don't have money, come buy. Eat. Yea, come buy milk and honey and wine without money and without I know it's impossible to believe ourselves. It's, it's when we rightly understand our sin, when we rightly understand who God is, we, we wonder, how, how could God forgive me? And yet his word is so clear and abundant of grace and mercy that comes to us. He is full of pardon and mercy. God sent his son into the world, not to condemn the world, but to save it. All who come to him, he will in no wise cast out. And yet maybe someone would say, but you don't know me, and it seems like I'm at the end of the road while I leave you with this illustration that somewhat helps us understand. The grand chess champion was examining a painting hanging on an art gallery wall, and the artist who had painted this match between the devil and a, and a young man was entitled Checkmate. And the devil was gleefully looking at the chessboard knowing that he gained a victory over this young man. And the young man is sitting in panic and distress, not knowing what to do. And the chess champion who had played so many games was pondering the picture of the chessboard and layout of all the pieces. And finally, after several minutes, he smiled slightly and turned to the curator of the museum and said, I have good news for the man in the picture. He still has a move. Satan wants us to imagine there's no moves left. We're sunk in the mire and the depths beyond hope. And David comes in this psalm and he says, as it were, there's one move left. It's God. 
who is merciful and gracious. There is forgiveness with God that he may be feared. And I say to you then, wait as David does. Wait on the Lord, eager to know this experience and this reality in your heart, hoping in the Lord. There is steadfast love, plenteous redemption. He will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Let's pray. Merciful and gracious God, may we know the reality of what David experienced in this psalm in our own hearts. That those who may be burdened and weighed down with sin may know the cleansing and pardon possible in the blood of the Lamb. And that knowing this, we may fear you as we ought. It would be evident in our words, in our conversation, in our lives. Lord, give that not one here who knows of this weight and burden would not turn to you today believing, hoping that with thee there is forgiveness and pardon and cleansing even for the greatest of sinners. And that those who have tasted of this truth and who know this truth, that our mouths may be opened also to extol and to magnify the Lord our God and to praise him, to fear him as we are called. So hear our prayer, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.